This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with creative thinkers and influential leaders who are seeking solutions to today's societal challenges. In this episode, Associate Vice President and Director of the Quinnipiac University Poll, Dr. Doug Schwartz, moderates a conversation with Denise Merrill, Connecticut's Secretary of the State, and Ron Brownstein, veteran political correspondent and analyst, about the upcoming presidential and national elections. They discuss changing voting patterns, how local and state polling operations will cope with the dramatic increase in mail ballots, and the political maneuvering between the parties in monitoring and managing these dramatic shifts in voter behavior. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. Good afternoon and welcome to The Way Forward. I'm Doug Schwartz, Associate Vice President of the Quinnipiac University Poll, and I'm honored to be here today with these esteemed guests. Our first guest today is Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill. She is in her third term as Connecticut's Chief Elections Official and Business Registrar, and I'm thrilled that she's here today to share her knowledge with us. Our next guest is Ron Brownstein, a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior political analyst for CNN. As someone who is deeply interested in politics myself, I always find his analysis to be insightful and important, and I'm sure today will be no different. Secretary Merrill, Ron, thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Doug. Thanks. And for those of you in the audience, um, the the Q&A box is open, so feel free to submit your questions. In many ways, this has been an unprecedented year, uh, which has resulted in a lot of confusion around the upcoming election. There are so many unknowns, and it comes against the backdrop of deep distrust among both parties. And then there's foreign influence. Secretary Merrill, you are on the front lines as Connecticut Secretary of the State. The FBI director just yesterday warned Russia is actively conducting a campaign to spread disinformation in an effort to interfere in the presidential election. Are you seeing any evidence of disinformation being spread here in Connecticut? Oh, I'm afraid so. Uh, And this is no surprise to me whatsoever. Uh, Since 2016, uh, when the DHS, we first learned that Connecticut had had an attempted incursion into its um, voter registry system, which by the way, is the only meaningful uh, cyber system about elections. Most of them are, are online, very kind of antiquated, honestly. Uh, everything's on paper. We have tabulators that are not connected to anything. But the voter registry is indeed uh, in all states now, I think, a statewide uh, cyber registry. Uh, we were not, we didn't know anything about it. And at the time when they testified before Congress and said 21 states had shown the signs of uh, Russian agency IP addresses trying to get into our voter registry. Uh, they were all turned back, by the way, except may possibly Illinois. Um, we were shocked. And of course, the first thing we wanted to know was, well, uh, was my state one of them? <laughs> and of course, they said, well, we can't tell you because it's top secret. So that's what started a long and 
rather torturous relationship between the secretaries of state who felt very much like this is a state system. Uh, we need to know about these things if you want anything done about it. And uh, I'm happy to say that by now we have a well-established communication network with the federal agencies. Uh, we know all about the kinds of things they're seeing and they have told us the nuts and bolts of it. I now have my top secret clearance and, uh, and am regularly part of these national uh, briefings on these matters. And it's very real. Uh, mm. And what's most impressive, I guess, or stunning to me is the amount of money that's being spent internationally by more than just Russia. Uh, other countries are certainly joining the fray in trying to influence American opinion about their elections, among other things. And it's literally billions of dollars. It's very clever. Uh, it, it's, um, it's insidious, actually. Uh, and it's very much at a local level, as well as a state or national level. Uh, the biggest risk we have is probably phishing emails that come in through unwitting local uh, officials like registrars and clerks who open something from their family, perhaps, and that can corrupt an entire voter registry. So, and there have been instance, instances across the country that this sort of thing has happened. Now, of course, we uncover it very quickly, uh, but it means the damage is done and the damage is to public trust in elections. And that is the most dangerous thing of all. Ron. Um there have been a number of people who say President Trump is spreading disinformation about the upcoming election, about the security of mail-in voting, and about the legitimacy of the election in general. Uh, you wrote a piece recently about the ways in which President Trump is weaponizing the federal government to his advantage in this election. Could you talk a little about that? Uh, what is the Trump administration uh, doing differently than past administrations? Sure, uh, and thanks for having me. And, and I have to exhale after listening to that from the Secretary uh, Merrill. I mean, that was, that was a little uh, uh, ominous, uh, you know, with individual clerks uh, being fished and, and, and uh, the threat that it raises. It's just a reminder of kind of the world that we are in. Uh, you know, we, we have, I've been writing about American politics since the early 1980s as my 10th presidential campaign. And certainly over the course of that period, we have become more divided uh, and more segmented, really, is a, a better way of putting it. I mean, each coalition, political coalition, is now much more homogenous than it was in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the, the differences between them is smaller and the distance between them is larger. Um, and that, I think, that kind of sense that they are representing two Americas that don't interact much, uh, that don't, you know, that seem increasingly antagonistic toward the other, uh, has inspired a kind of vision of kind of winner-take-all politics uh, that uh, any tool that can be used should be used uh, by the sides. And, you know, we've kind of seen a steady escalation, the, the, uh, the retrenchment of the filibuster, uh, the kind of landmark moment when, uh, when Mitch McConnell would not allow a vote on Merrick Garland for the entire 2016. And then Trump comes into office, you know, um, uh, who, and as someone who uh, styles himself and believes himself to be a disruptor or someone who's not held um, uh, in constraint by normal bounds, and he moves, I think, further, faster, and more uh, ominously, again, to use that word, than any president before him to weaponize every element of the federal government uh, for the advantage of him and his party, and in many ways to diminish the ability of you know, the parts of America where he's less popular to resist him. I mean, when he said the other day that if you take out the blue states, we're doing fine, 
that was incredibly revealing of his mindset. I mean, I think President Trump sees himself as the president of Red America, and in many ways, as I've written, as a wartime president for Red America against Blue America. I mean, his goal from the beginning has not been to win over, whether it's the states or the metro areas within the states that have been most resistant to him. It's been to demonize them and to use them as a foil uh, to mobilize uh, his own base. And as part of that, you know, uh, yes, when, when administrations change, you expect the head of the EPA to change and policies on environmental regulation to change. In the past, you have not expected career prosecutors at the, at the, um, uh, at the Justice Department to have different approaches to who gets charged or who doesn't. You have not expected the census to be systematically uh, in multiple ways uh, realigned to try to produce an outcome that is beneficial to one party. The Postal Service, yeah, I mean, the Postal Service, you hired, uh, you know, you put uh, political uh, supporters there, James Farley, who was Roosevelt's campaign manager in the 30s, of course, was the Postmaster General. But the goal was not to um, uh, reconfigure the delivery of mail so that it benefited one party, or for that matter, the deployment of federal agents to cities, uh, the DHS agents over the uh, uh, objection of mayor. So I think we are seeing a, a clear escalation with no meaningful constraint on it uh, from the Republicans in Congress. Uh, President Trump basically saying, and, and now the CDC process, as you see, you know, the, the CDC guidelines, uh, as the New York Times reveals, not even written, written by CDC scientists, every element of the federal government is essentially being sharpened into a weapon uh, for partisan advantage in a way that we have not seen before in, in administrations of either party. And it is an ominous, an ominous, um, uh, again, to use that word, uh, direction as a final thought, because this is what, you know, one of the things you see in, in authoritarian governments is the use of federal power to benefit one faction at the expense of the other. And as I've written, Doug, as you know, um, it is, it, it feels to me almost as if Jefferson Davis and not Abraham Lincoln had got elected president in 1860 and then used federal power to try to strengthen the South, to fortify the South in the coming sectional conflict. That I think in essence is what Trump is doing, that he is using federal power to bolster red America and impose the priorities of red America on blue America and to diminish the ability of blue America to resist them. Uh, and that is you know, a, a very different kind of politics than we have experienced. Ron, you, you mentioned the changes at the Postal Service. Um, how do you think those changes are going to impact this election? Well, I mean, obviously we have a court decision now that is, that is uh, putting them on hold. Um, I don't think we know exactly. I do think it is, I would usually what the secretary thinks about this because I think fewer people are going to vote by mail than we once anticipated, or at least have their ballots returned by mail. I mean, I, a lot of people are going to vote by mail it's going to be more than ever before. I think the estimates are from Charles Stewart at MIT that roughly a quarter, and, and others, the election, uh, the EAC, that roughly a quarter of Americans voted by mail, maybe a little just under that in 2016. I think the original estimates were maybe half would vote by mail this time. I think enough people have been kind of, you know, spooked by uh, uh, what the president has said and what the, the Postal Service has said that, that there may be somewhat fewer than that, obviously many more than 20 16, but maybe not all the way up to what we thought, and that there'll be a lot of people looking to either get a ballot by mail and then return it in person or to vote in person to begin with, as we saw today, at those giant lines in Virginia. I think that's going to be a very attractive option, particularly to Democrats who are worried about uh, you know, what they have read about the post office. Now, whether they should be worried if they can get their ballot out in September, that's another question, but I do think it's not going to be quite as high as we may have originally thought.
And uh, Secretary Merrill, I wanted you to weigh in on this as well about the, this recent uh, court case that sort of put a stop to the change, changes at the Postal Service. Um, do you think things, you know, this ruling will change things before election day? I actually hope Ron is correct, uh, just from a procedural <clears throat> point of view. But yes, I, I think the problems at the post office cannot be overstated. I saw it with my own eyes right there in Hartford, where there was a heap of metal where mm. there had once been a sorting machine sitting in the parking lot. Uh, this is real. And that was what it took for me to open my eyes. Because honestly, I, you know, I'm from a generation where people sort of took elections for granted. I mean, we almost have a touching faith in elections in this mm. country or have had until now. No one ever asked how your ballot got processed, who did it, where, when did you count it, uh, you know, where did it go? And I'm called on to answer those questions every single day, multiple times, by everyone across the political spectrum. Uh, so I do think it's going to make a difference. Uh, it's going to make a structural difference. I can tell you in the primary, uh, the delays that we had largely were because of postal service delays. Oh, wow. uh, and of course, here we also had a major storm. <laughs> one week before the primary. And we're used to that here too. I mean, we had a major storm in 2011 and in 2012 as well. Uh, but the elections do go on. It's almost like the postal, so the old saying about the postal service, mm. you know, that the election will go on, you know, come hell or high water. And that is sort of the attitude that a lot of elections people bring to this. But, you know, the, the distrust and the uh, questions that have been raised by all this uh, cannot be overstated. And here in Connecticut, we've tried to counteract some of that by buying ballot boxes, which is a big deal here because we've never had these before. Many states use them routinely. I understand that in Washington and Oregon, they're on every street corner and you just drop your ballot in the ballot box. Here, I was sued uh, immediately about the use of ballot boxes and whether they were secure. And, you know, there was all kinds of, uh, then we had to pass legislation, special legislation to enable us to keep mm. using the ballot boxes just for this election, not in the future. And uh, the rhetoric on the floor was unbelievable. People were afraid people were gonna be throwing urine in the boxes and blowing them up and all kinds of things. And, you know, years ago, I would have said, well, that's crazy. I mean, now, who knows? I mean, maybe some of those things will happen, but it is to some extent an antidote to the idea that you have to use the postal service. I do think we are going to have a lot of people voting by mail. There really are a lot of people very fearful of contracting COVID. You know, we've done a great job, frankly, here in Connecticut. We're one of the states that is not having a surge. Uh, we are, you know, one of the least infected states around. We've taken many precautions. I hand it to our governor. He's hung tough through a lot of criticism on this. But, um, but you know, people are worried about it. And, um, I think the fact that we took steps to protect people's health and not have them have to make a choice between their health and their vote is very important to people. You know, we do take our elections very seriously in this country, but I just feel like we're in such uncharted waters, I wouldn't even want to predict what's mm -hmm. going to happen even a month from now. I mean, look, look at the changes we've gone through just in the last few weeks and the kinds of court cases, the litigiousness of this election is already off the charts. And it hasn't even happened yet. I think it's going to make 2000 look quaint. 
you know, the Bush v. Gore uh, contest where, you know, the hanging chads and all the questions about Florida. But in the end, we had someone named Al Gore who conceded in the interest of unity of the country. I hope we have that if we get in the same situation. I'm just not so sure. Can, can I have one point there, Doug? You know, because I, I need all that, I, you know, again, really agree with all that. The, I, having spent 40 days and nights, biblical, biblical 40 days and nights in Tallahassee in 2000, I can attest to what a, what a struggle that was. But I would say in addition to the fact that Gore conceded the other difference is I'm not sure a Supreme Court, you know, if there may, you know, there's going to be so many parallel uh, uh, state and so much parallel state and federal litigation after the election, if it's at all close. I mean, it's, you know, if it is decisive, there may be, and, and it, you know, it can probably be decisive only in one direction if you look at the polling. I mean, you know, if Trump wins, it's going to be very narrowly. Uh, if Biden wins, it could be decisive, but it could also be close. And if it is decisive, it's possible that enough Republicans will say, okay, that's it, we're not going down this road. But if it's close, I don't know if you can count on Mitch McConnell to be kind of the voice of reason that says, let's not fight this to the, to the end. And I think a big difference, there are a couple big differences to 2000s. One is that Gore specifically, uh, as I wrote recently, uh, asked Jesse Jackson and other Democratic leaders not to protest not to have street protests during the recount. I don't think that's gonna be the case. I think that if there is a question of whether, uh, you know, if, if Biden appears to have won and Trump appears to be uh, trying to reverse that, I think you're gonna see more people in the street than at any point in American history. I will go out on a limb. I think that it will be the biggest social protest we've ever seen. It's possible set more than 75 million people are gonna vote for Biden, you know? Um, it's entirely possible he will get more than 75 million votes. There'll be a lot of people in the street. The other thing that I think is different, you know, as I look through and you know, I, I commend to our listeners the wargaming scenarios done by the Transition Integrity Project, which are very chilling, which is a bipartisan group that has done wargaming of what could happen after the election. But one thing I think is different is that, you know, Al Gore in 2000 said the Supreme Court has spoken, that's it. I'm not sure that's the case in 2020. 20 more years of a very partisan court that often breaks on 5-4 lines that ended the Voting Rights Act effectively on a 5-4 party line decision that ended Citizens United you know, on a 5-4 by Republican justice. There's been a lot of these kind of, kind of calls. And if there is a 5-4 decision with five Republican justices outvoting four Democratic justices in some way that stops a count in Wisconsin or Arizona or somewhere, I'm not sure that's where it ends. I'm really not. I think you could see it continue to be fought out through Congress. And there are all sorts of interesting questions about uh, you know, what, what a deadlock looks like between the House and the Senate over which electors to accept. If Democrats win the Senate, very hard for Trump, I think. If Democrats have the House and the Senate, um, I, I'm not even sure the Supreme Court can, can, can overcome that. So we're gonna be, look, we, we, if, it, if it's decisive, it's decisive. If it's not decisive, we could be facing a November and December, you know, that are unlike any post-election period we've had, not to be too dramatic, since uh, Abe Lincoln in 1860. Wow. Um, I've been getting a bunch of questions, which is great. So I am going to pick one here for you, Secretary Merrill. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'd still like to ask you. And the question is, uh, do you prefer people uh, vote by mail? Mm. Wow, I, that's, um, 
that would be hard for me to say. I, I do think people can feel safe if they go to the polling places. We've spent a lot of time and money on making sure that we have PPE, that we're requiring masks, that we're having people follow all the CDC guidelines. But I, I just really think people have to decide for themselves. If you're in a category like over 65, uh, like myself, by the way, uh, you know, you may feel uh, not good about going to a polling place this year and justifiably. Uh, certainly there are many high risk people, you know, that, that probably should consider not going to the polling place. On the other hand, I think we've almost created a situation where people think that they can't go to the polling place. Mm. Uh, and across the country, you know, there's been so much discussion about voting by mail. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it safe? Is it secure? Uh, that I think people are, and of course, we're now mailing in Connecticut applications to every single voter. So that gives them the impression, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? So that I think is contributing to some confusion on the point. I think as we get closer to election day, people will sort of, you know, make up their own minds and realize that yes, I can still go to the polls. Although who knows, maybe we'll have a sudden resurgence right here in Connecticut, just like everywhere else. It's all gonna depend on what's happening that last week. It's gonna come down to that last week Ooh. as yeah. always. <laughs> Hey Doug, can I yeah. ask a question? Can I ask the secretary a question real quick? Um, I'm interested. What, do you, what was your experience in the primary with rejection of ballots, and what do, do you worry about in terms of if you have, as you say, a lot of people in Connecticut may be voting by mail for the first time? Do you worry that there are going to be a lot of rejected ballots, and do you have a process for people to cure that, as they say? Yeah, we, we usually don't have much problem with uh, defective ballots that are defective because they aren't signed or something like that. I, I don't know why. Well, for one thing, not many people vote absentee. But, uh, but we did have a lot of late arriving ballots. Now, that's because, again, we changed the rules just for the primary, and the gover governor issued an executive order that allowed us to become briefly a postmark state. And that's very mm. interesting because just yesterday, or maybe today, Michigan became a postmark state, which means, of course, your ballot can be counted if it is postmarked by election day. And then some states, Michigan just allowed any ballot that's postmarked by election day and received up to 14 days mm. after the election. And California, it's 10 days. So, you know, those of you who are worried about results being late, uh, you have a right to be worried. On the other hand, if you're one of those people that worries about every last vote counting, uh, then you're probably happy <laughs> when that happens. That is not the case. I want to hasten to say in Connecticut, we are still not a postmark state for the general election. That was a one-time executive order for the primary. I had a, a specific question uh, regarding uh, election day. It, is there a shortage, uh, Secretary Merrill, of poll workers in Connecticut right now? Well, uh, we have tried to work with local officials. Again, our elections are very local. Uh, so election day is organized by uh, local registrars of voters. And so far, they have not expressed a huge need uh, for poll workers. But we do have a volunteer program that we have launched. Uh, the colleges across the state have united in giving, and I know Quinnipiac's wow. part of this, giving students the day off on election day and urging them to volunteer at the polls. 
So I'm working with the governor's office to try to connect those students with their local communities. But, uh, you know, we hope not, but we are busy recruiting what I call the next generation of poll workers. We've seen this coming for years. Uh, many of the poll workers are very elderly and, uh, you know, it's time to get a new generation to step up. And I think it's the perfect opportunity. One other question, uh, Secretary Merrill, is I read that you're expecting two-thirds of Connecticut voters to vote by absentee ballot, um, which is an unprecedented number. Um, do you think that the state is, is ready in terms of having enough you know, people in the clerk's offices to be able to process it? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you have to remember about 50% of the towns in Connecticut are tiny. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they're probably going to be just fine uh, if they get 100 absentee ballots. It's not a big deal. Um, the cities, yes, I worry. On the other hand, we have, as I said, a, an unprecedented uh, CARES Act grant. We have sent millions, literally millions of dollars down to the town so that they have the money up front to be able to hire extra help. Uh, that being said, it's not so easy to bring in part-time help to be doing things on systems that you have to know how to input things, you know, how to manage it. So they're working really hard. Uh, you know, it might be a bit of a challenge. That's why we mailed all the applications out for them. Um, but we'll see. I, we're going to do the best we can. Ron, I wanted to um, ask you a question about a statistic that I recently saw in uh, North Carolina. Um, and that is that mail-in mail ballots from black voters mm -hmm. in North Carolina are being rejected at um, higher rates than mail-in ballots from white voters. Uh, race and racism is already such a big issue this year. For example, we found in our recent national poll that 75% uh, of voters say that racism is a big problem in the U.S. today. Uh, between the protests that have been going on for months and President Trump's recent focus on law and order in his campaign. Do you see the emphasis on race in this election as benefiting one candidate over the other? Uh, really good question. You know, I believe that and have for a decade, roughly a decade now, uh, that the fundamental dividing line between the parties is no longer economic class. It is attitudes toward the demographic, cultural, and economic changes uh, that are remaking America. And, you know, in 2012, I wrote uh, my piece the day after the election. I wrote that, you know, we, we see the outlines of a new politics in which the Democrats mobilize a coalition of transformation, I called it, which was essentially uh, millennials, uh, people of color, and an increasing number of white collar, college educated white voters, secular voters, all of them predominantly situated inside the major metro areas of the country. And you could see in 2012, Republicans beginning to mobilize what I call the Coalition of Restoration, uh, which are uh, centered on older, uh, non-college, evangelical, and rural whites, obviously outside, predominantly outside the major metros uh, in the country. You know, 2016, uh, by 2016, Trump, uh, the, the impact of Trump and probably of Clinton too, just pushed this so much further. I mean, uh, you know, Clinton won 87 of the 100 largest counties in America. She won them by a combined 15 million votes. They provided over half of all of her total votes. And Trump won over 2,600 of the other 3,000, you know, more than any candidate in either party since Reagan in 1984. And he also won uh, the highest share of the vote 
among whites without a college degree of any candidate since Reagan in 84. And if you look, Doug, uh, even then, uh, you know, there were studies done by multiple political scientists. There's one group at UCLA, another, uh, Brian Schaffner at Tufts, sorry, no one from Quinnipiac, uh, that found that the single best predictor by far of who voted for Trump in 2016 was not feeling economic distress. It was the belief that systemic racism and sexism does not exist. That was the best predictor of support for Trump. In 2018, uh, the, those two variables were again, the strongest predictor of who voted Democrat and Republican in the House. And the correlation, the relationship was much stronger than it had been in the previous midterm in 2014. I think if you look forward to 2020 and you see the sorting that we are living through, where Trump, as you know from all of your polls, and I, I, we, can, we can go through many of your state polls, Trump is not quite as strong as he was in 2016 among whites without a college degree, but he's still really strong among them. He's, he's, he's in the, probably in the mid-50s in the North, and he's still around 70 in the South, in North Carolina. You had South Carolina, he was at 70. Kentucky, he's at like 70. Um, uh, and meanwhile, Biden is on track to win more college-educated white voters uh, than any Democratic nominee ever, without question. I mean, the poll out today had him plus 35 among them, which probably isn't right. But, you know, there's debate about whether any Democrat has ever won them at all, much less by 35. Um, so that is a world in which, um, with the slight kind of interesting curveball, that Trump has the potential to do a little better among young Hispanic and black men. That is a world in which the parties are sharply divided by their attitudes on race and gender, by the way. And in the new Pew polling that came out last week that I wrote about, the gap between Trump voters and Biden voters is even bigger than the gap between Trump voters and Clinton voters over whether uh, uh, African-Americans face systemic discrimination whether women face discrimination, whether society is better off if people uh, prioritize staying, you know, staying home with kids, uh, whether immigrants are a strength in America or are, you know, undermine traditional American. On all of these fronts, the parties are further sorting out as the Democrats consolidate their hold on kind of diverse info age metro America in every state, by the way, not just in blue states like California, New York, but in Texas and Georgia, and Phoenix as well, uh, and Republicans remain dominant outside of that. And you, and you have, you know, as I said, the reality is that Trump has, has imposed on the GOP a strategy primarily of squeezing bigger margins out of groups that are shrinking at the expense of alienating the groups that are growing. And that is, that is driven above all by this kind of realignment of the parties along their attitudes about racial and cultural change rather than economic class. Um, Secretary Merrill, I, I've been getting a, a few specific questions about um, the election here in Connecticut that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one was, uh, should Connecticut voters uh, expect a delay in the reporting of election mm -hmm. results in November? Um, I guess my short answer is yes. Um, and. And I think that's okay, honestly. It's not gonna be anything like the delay you're going to see in Michigan and California for the reasons we just discussed. Um, we did give them in the legislation another, I think, 96 hours to report total results. 
But remember that most of the ballot will be very decisive one way or the other. I mean, there are a lot of other races besides the presidential race on our ballot. I would fully expect that the media will call the race for president for uh, in the presidential race by uh, 8.15, um, as they almost always do, because it will be pretty decisive in Connecticut, I think. Um, so it really is a question of all those other state assembly races, uh, state senate races, uh, even local questions and so forth that might cause some delay. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think it's realistic. I don't like the fact that I think it'll be later than midnight on election night, but mm. I think that's realistic. Okay. And Ron, what, what are you planning on for election night? Uh, when you think of it, um, are there certain states that you're going to be watching? How long of an election? Is it going to be an election week, election month? What are you thinking? Uh, you know, last time I was, uh, you know, I, I sitting on one of those panels we had, those big desks we had at CNN, and it was Jeffrey Lord, Corey Lewandowski, Van Jones, and me when Wolf called it at like 2.11 or whatever it was. And it was, you know, it was, it was certainly, you know, not what you expected when you walked in that morning. Although I had written, I, I, I am, I am uh, happy, uh, proud that I wrote on election day that Hillary Clinton had the risk of falling between the Democrats past and its future, that the coalition in the Rust Belt could crumble a little faster than the coalition in the Sun Belt coalesced and you end up just short in both places. And that is obviously the risk to Biden. If there is a risk to Biden, that is the risk to Biden. You know, that, that Trump holds just enough and turns out just enough non-college whites in the Midwest to hold at least one of the big three probably not Michigan, either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. And then Biden can't get the margins or the turnout that he needs among non-white voters to flip either North Carolina or Arizona. Um, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure we'll know the winner on election night, but I think it's possible that we will. I mean, I think if, uh, uh, you know, despite the 14 day uh, period, you know, Michigan could be an eight or 10 point state. And if Michigan's an eight or 10 point state and Biden wins Florida, you're done. I mean, that's it, you know, assuming he wins all the Clinton states, which I think he will. Look, we could be counting New Hampshire for a while. Uh, based on your polling and uh, the New York Times polling, we're not gonna be counting Maine. I mean, there may not be, other than Pennsylvania uh, and North Carolina, uh, I'm not sure there are gonna be that many states on the Eastern seaboard that are that close uh, at the presidential level. So, um, you know, I don't think anybody real realistically thinks that Biden is going to lose Illinois, Oregon, Washington, or California. So therefore, uh, if he wins either Michigan or Pennsylvania decisively on election night, uh, you know, even with subsequent counting and wins Florida, you're done. Now, it's possible that that won't happen, that, you know, Florida always tends to get back to being a muddle and, uh, and a difficult count, in which case, you know, it could go on for a while, but I'm not convinced that it's going to be, you know, 72 hours before we know the winner. I mean, Trump will have to recover for that to be the case. And he might. I mean, he might. I mean, today, I think that there would be enough states that would be decisive enough that we'd have a pretty good idea who won, even if we don't have it fully nailed down. I'm going to uh, return again to uh, Secretary Merrill on this one. I got, a, again, a few more questions about um, what's going to happen uh, with, the, with the voting process here in Connecticut. Um, I guess I, I would ask you, I know that you've begun to send out the applications um, for the absentee ballots. Uh, how's that going so far? 
Uh, they are all out. Uh, 2.1 million were mailed uh, between, I think, the 9th and the 14th, something like that. So most of you will be getting them by the end of this week. Now, of course, you have to remember we did uh, cut the list, as they say, on August 26th. So if you're someone who registered after that time, it will be up to you to ask for an absentee ballot application. You can get them on our website, uh, as always, or you can get one from the town clerk. Uh, the clerks prefer if you use the mail-in ones because they're coded such that they can scan them in with the little uh, wands. But, and that's gonna be a big help in a, in a city like Hartford where they might expect 20 to 30,000 absentee ballots. It's a challenge. So, uh, but yeah, it's going very well. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's always a question as to how accurate the lists are. And of course, we've been challenged on that as well. The lists are uh, maintained at the local level, again, and uh, there is always a lag and people frequently don't realize, for example, that when you move, it, your registration does not move with you. Uh, it's one of those shocks that people find out when they come up to vote and suddenly their name is not on that list. Uh, that's always a shock to people. So uh, I always advise people, go to the website. We have a website where you can check to make sure that you are properly registered in the place where you actually live. Uh, it's called myvote.ct.gov and it's a handy tool. You can al also, for the first time in Connecticut at least, track your ballot. So you wow. can go to that website and figure, you know, you can tell when the clerk logs in either the fact that they sent you a ballot or that your ballot has been received. And you can be sure then that it will be counted because it's been logged in. So those are new features that we added very quickly <laughs> in the last couple of months. And some of the challenges we've faced have been things like that. You know, things you take for granted in the private sector. I mean, for example, the credit card company knows exactly where you are at all times <laughs> because you tend to update your records <laughs> with your credit card company, uh, but not so much with your voter registration. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that people start thinking about it about a week ahead of the election. And that's a problem. <laughs> So, so what keeps this one again for Secretary Merrill, what, what keeps you up at night? What, what is you know, your biggest concern about uh, the election right now? I guess I'd have to say everything. Um, <laughs> as I said before, uh, I'm from a generation that never questioned any of this. I think everyone questions everything now. And uh, I fear for our country. I am not looking forward to election day, I have to say, for the first time in my life, uh, because people are so on edge and so stressed out about so many things in our culture and our society today. Uh, you know, the, the confluence of a major pandemic, the wildfires in the West, I'm from San Francisco, and my heart breaks for the West Coast and those beautiful areas that are burning out of control. I mean, there, it just feels like every day you wake up and some new tragedy has occurred. And of course, we all like to think none of this is our fault and uh, none of this is anything we can do anything about, but it is contributing to an incredible malaise in the country. And the drama that's gone on in the last couple of years is not helping. And I think we're all just exhausted from it. Uh, and so, yeah, I have a lot of fears. Um, I hope they don't come true. I'm still basically an optimist. Um, 
And so I just, I think we all have to do the best we can and just try to chill out a little bit. Um, and I know that's hard for lots of people for lots of reasons, but there you have it. <laughs> and what would you want the Connecticut voters to know? Is there any you know, specific message that you would really want them to think about before the election? Um, yeah, a couple. Um, vote early. <laughs> Get it in there, uh, and and don't complain afterwards if your vote doesn't count because you didn't do it early enough. You know we're all responsible for each other, and and I guess I still say your vote does matter. It matters tremendously, even academically, if you will. Um, even if it isn't literally true that Connecticut matters in the great sweep of the electoral college and so forth. Um, just the very fact that you're participating in one of the greatest civic events uh, of all times, uh, the great American experiment is important and it's important to every person in the state. So don't give up that right. No matter how scared you are of contracting COVID, use one of these options we're trying so hard to provide you and, and get out there and be part of it. Great, thank you. Um, and Ron, uh we've touched on, there are a million one things going on in this election yeah. year between the coronavirus and its economic impacts, natural disasters and the widespread protests. Do you think there is one thing that is having the, the biggest impact on the 2020 presidential race? I do, actually. Uh, and I think, you know, I would say uh, you would think the coronavirus would be number one. And in any kind of um, political system that we grew up with or have in our heads, it would be number one. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in, a, in some of the polling aggregates, uh, Biden's lead now is the same as it was last October, you know, within, within a point. Um, uh, as if none of this had happened, as if 200,000 people weren't dead and uh, the, we have not seen the procession of former officials come out from the White House and say, you know, they don't think uh, President Trump is fit for the job. Uh, the economy was not facing what it did. And to me, that is an indication that the most important thing in our elections now is the underlying cultural divide. I mean, the divide about our culture. You know, I said to someone the other day, I feel like less that I'm living through an election than I am participating in a census. You know, it's like it's less about voters comparing two individuals and we're, as more about we're kind of counting up how many people are on which side of the divide that Trump has struck. I mean, that is an important point. I mean, you know, there's a reason why a state like Wisconsin is getting tougher for Democrats and a state like Arizona and Georgia is getting bigger. It's because the line through these places that kind of decide in which people decide which side of the you know, boundary they belong on is a little different. The angle is shifting and it kind of reconfigures. And I think the, you know, the, the biggest single factor in this election is that Trump has identified the Republican Party so unreservedly and unconditionally with the elements of American society that are most uneasy about the way the country is changing, particularly demographically, but as I said, also in gender roles and culture. And that has allowed him to generate this passionate attachment uh, and, and big margins among you know, several groups in the electorate, including uh, whites without a college degree and evangelicals and rural whites, even though the margins may be a little down from 2016. The price of that is what you are witnessing uh, you know, on the other side. I mean, just what, what is Fairfield County? What is the margin gonna be? In, I mean, 
you know, this was a place where Republicans used to compete or Fairfax County or Oakland County in Michigan. And not only that, but, you know, Harris County I mean, in Houston. It was a big deal, Doug, when, Doug, when uh, Barack Obama won Harris County by literally a thousand votes. I mean, it's possible that Biden could win it by 300,000 votes. You know, Beto won it by 200,000. So this profound resorting of the electorate that, uh, that we are witnessing is so, has so much momentum that even the worst pandemic in a century is only changing at the margin. I'm not saying it has no effect, obviously, because I think the clearest effect is that we are seeing Biden run better with seniors than Democrats have. Uh, uh, you know, since Gore in 2000. And, I, and I, I do think that the mishandling of the, of the coronavirus reinforces the movement that we've seen among college-educated voters who just kind of look at this as sheer incompetence. But the fact that this election is holding so um, thoroughly to the pre-existing lines that were engraved before any of this happened is just, to me, a signal of how powerful those lines are going to be all the way through the coming decade. Great. Well, um, I think that unfortunately brings us to the end of our time, uh, but this has been a riveting hour. Uh, Ron, Secretary Merrill, thank you both so much for being here today. Uh, this event has been recorded and will be available on demand on Quinnipiac University's website. And audio from this event will also appear on the Way Forward podcast hosted by President Judy Olian. Thank you to our fantastic guests, to Quinnipiac University and President Olean for putting this together and especially to everyone who tuned in today. Thanks for listening to Dr. Doug Schwartz's conversation with Denise Merrill and Ron Brownstein on unprecedented controversies surrounding the upcoming presidential and national elections. The Way Forward event series is directed by Carla Natal, and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast. And check us out on Instagram and Twitter at QU Podcasts. With more thought-provoking speakers still to come, make sure to be on the lookout for additional episodes of The Way Forward.